So I don't know about you guys, but I grew up with a dad that lived to terrorize and play tricks on his children. In fact, sometimes I wonder if I was born just for that purpose, in order to be the butt of uh, terror that my dad decided to instill into my sister and I. Uh, There was one time in particular, though, that sticks out to me, and I don't know if it's from the trauma that happened in this situation, or just specifically that it was a funny memory. Uh, But I remember my dad one day coming into my, my, my sister's room, and my sister and I were hanging out, and she's a few years older than me, and I think I was under the age of five at this time, and he comes and he's holding this big, giant book. It was probably one of my mom's anatomy textbooks. I mean, it was huge, and he covered it in dirt or baby powder, or I don't know, but the story goes is that he came into the room and said that he was digging outside, and he found this book, and then he dramatically blows on it, and you see the cloud of smoke kind of come up into the air, and he opens up the book, and he begins to warn us that, obe- that disobedient children will receive a plague of dots all over their face. And we're just, even at this age, we're laughing at my dad, and we're not believing at all what he is telling us. I mean, who would, right? So we laugh this off. He walks away, and the next morning, we wake up, you know, go to the bathroom. My sister and I, at the same time, go into our bathroom together to brush our teeth and get ready for the day when we both kind of just look, rub our eyes a bit, look again, and then eyes wide open, and there's dots covering our entire face. So while we were sleeping, my dad put marker dots all over my face and my sister's face, and we just look at each other and start screaming in panic as what we did not believe the day before all of a sudden became belief the day of. So, Dad, if you're listening to this sermon, you can uh, pay for my next therapy bill. <laughs> but that's just my father. But, you know, even, even if your dad wasn't like that, or maybe you're like that, I don't know, we probably have all at some point in our lives been challenged with whether we believe something to be true or not right? Somebody tells us something, maybe we saw something on an infomercial and it made a great claim, or maybe somebody told you to try something out, trust me, you'll love it, and we struggle to believe whether it's going to be true or not. Well, today we're going to be looking at a story from scripture that I think has that same struggle, whether we believe something or not. However, I would say that this struggle far trumps any infomercial or terror that a father wants to instill into his children because it has to do with the story of Jesus's resurrection and whether a particular individual would believe that Jesus could truly rise from the grave. And if you think about it, that question, that doubt, is a question that is still asked and still pondered upon today. Was Jesus who he said he was? Did he really die the death that people mention? And more specifically, did he rise from the grave? 
So in order to do that, we're going to open up our Bibles to John chapter 20. And the verses that we're going to be looking at today will be from verse 24 to 29. John 20, 24 through 29. So a little bit of context, we're specifically going to be looking at the life of one of Jesus' disciples named Thomas. Now, if you didn't know, Thomas was one of the select group of 12 disciples. And just to show you some of their names, uh, Chris, if you don't mind putting it on the screen for us, these are the 12 disciples of Jesus. Now, you'll notice if you read different portions of Scripture that these disciples have sometimes two different names. Uh, Not because they went by two different names, but it depended upon which language. Uh, that an individual would have a name. So this is something that's very similar or, or at least very easy for me to understand as someone that's somewhat bilingual, although my whole entire family uh, in that, that lives abroad makes fun of me for the way that I speak Spanish. They say I speak Spanish like a gringo, if you know what that term is. <laughs> But in my culture, it's very normal for somebody to have their anglicized or English name and then to have their Spanish name. So, for instance, for my sister, her name is Erica, but if we're actually in Puerto Rico, everybody calls her Erica. And it's just, it's different because of the language. So some of that is true for the disciples and for Thomas today, who also goes by the name of Didymus. So in this gospel story of John chapter 20, verse 24, it goes like this. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, was one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Now, specifically, wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came and visited them after the resurrection. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, pronouncing Jesus' resurrection to Thomas. But listen to how Thomas responds to his friends who are trying to let him know that they have seen a resurrected Jesus. Thomas responds to them and says this, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands... And put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Now, this is pretty interesting that Thomas would make a claim like this, but I think it's important for us to kind of explore why he would make a claim like this. So, as I had mentioned, sometimes the disciples go by two different names. Well, Thomas's names, both in Hebrew and in Greek, which is why he's called Didymus in Greek, would have meant twin. And nobody really knows why he was called twin. Some people believe that Thomas actually probably had a twin brother or sister, or perhaps that Thomas kind of represented a person who sometimes was sitting on both sides of the fence. You see, if you did not know this, both in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we really don't hear much about the life of Thomas. In fact, Scripture is rather silent on who this person is. We know that he's one of the disciples of Jesus, but unlike Peter and John and some of the other disciples that we know well, Scripture doesn't really share many stories about Thomas other than in the Gospel of John. 
If you knew your church history, you would actually know that the Gospel of John was most likely the last gospel or one of the later gospels that was written by the disciple John, by one of the twelve apostles. And it's believed that this is one of the later uh, Gospels that came out. But what's interesting about the Gospel of John is we see this twin nature with the disciple of Thomas. Specifically, Thomas is the first disciple when everybody is afraid to go back to Bethany and Jerusalem because Jesus knows that this will mark the end of his life, Thomas is the only disciple to really say to the other disciples first that we need to go with Jesus and die with him as well. You see, in that particular story, we see a Thomas who is bold in his faith, who wants to suffer with Jesus, and more specifically, we see a disciple who is very, very loyal to the cause of Jesus Christ. But yet here, we see a totally different picture of Thomas. We see Thomas as Doubting Thomas. Say doubting Thomas with me. Doubting Thomas. And unfortunately for Thomas, this is kind of the moniker through which we kind of understand Thomas today. Just like we think of Mary and Martha, right? Martha being the busy bee and Mary being at the feet of Jesus. Thomas has kind of the the bad nickname of doubting Thomas. Even though he wasn't always a doubter, but at least within this pinnacle moment of post-resurrection, Thomas is very much doubting that Jesus came back from the grave. And I think this is sad because I think this kind of gives a bad name that is really not fitting with who Thomas is, but at least it's fitting in this moment that he is having some serious doubts about the person of Jesus. And maybe that's a struggle that you can relate to. Maybe you think about certain portions of your life and you're reminded about those moments where you had a lot of faith, where you too maybe were willing to say something like, let's go die with Christ. But and then on the flip side, you also have those totally opposite perspectives where you look at the situation around you and you say, I don't know if I could believe what somebody's trying to sell to me about Jesus. You see, I think we all are like this at different times in our life, right? Where we have our doubts and we also have our strong moments of faith. And I hope that through the rest of this message, we can sort that out a little bit more. But let's go back to scripture and read another two verses. So let's read verse uh, 20, or let's just read verse 26, actually. So if you could put uh, chapter 20, verse six, uh, 26 on the screen for me. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. So this is most likely the next Sunday, just like we are now in the next Sunday from resurrection. And Thomas was there with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. 
Now, that's pretty awesome. I'm not sure if I'm making a a wrong statement here, but it kind of seems like Jesus just popped out of nowhere from locked doors, and that's pretty remarkable, right? And Jesus goes and kind of startles all of them and tells them to peace be with you. But I want to point out something else. As cool as that probably is that Jesus appears to them, I want to point out another portion of this scripture that I think it is easy to miss. I want you to look back at verse 26. Now, a week has gone by from when the disciples last saw Jesus. A week has gone by from when Thomas said, I'm not believing in Christ unless I could touch him and see him with my eyes. And what do you see the disciples doing here? What does it say about what the disciples are doing? The doors were what? Locked. So the disciples weren't running around saying, he is risen, and waiting for everybody else to say, he is They weren't doing at all what we were trying to celebrate with last week. They weren't exclaiming from the rooftops that he is risen. You thought he was dead, but guess what? Hide the eggs because Jesus has come back. I'm just joking about that. I'm still figuring out why Easter bunnies can lay eggs that need to be hidden. On, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that later. <laughs> but the disciples are not yelling out from the rooftops, he is risen. In fact, I would say that the disciples were most likely still very, very afraid. Otherwise, why would they be locking their doors in a time period where most people probably didn't lock their doors as regularly? I mean, maybe you remember that time period, at least within our country, 50 years ago or so, when everybody just left their doors unlocked. But yet the disciples were so afraid that they were living in their homes with doors locked. Which tells me that they were most likely, even after seeing a resurrected Jesus, still very afraid of what just happened to Christ, and also still very unaware in some ways of what Jesus was doing with this act of resurrection, and how in weeks to come it would literally change the world as the Holy Spirit would come and descend upon the the believers radically changing their lives forever and in, in even today. They were hiding and they were afraid. You see, I think we sometimes wrongly glorify people in Scripture. Don't get me wrong. There are plenty men and women in the Bible that deserve recognition and deserve our admiration. But I think sometimes we look at Scripture and we look at the heroes of the faith, these men and these women, and we look at them almost as if they were born in a way that we can never relate to them. We can never struggle like they struggle. We can never do the things that they did when in reality they were just like you and me. They had the same fears. They had the same doubts. They had the same preoccupations. 
the only thing that really separates them from the greatness that they were able to achieve and from us is their willingness to allow God to meet them where they're at. You see, sometimes the only thing that holds back God's people from doing the great things that God calls his people to engage in is our unwillingness to be used by the Holy Spirit. Our unwillingness to allow God to be invited into the situations of our lives. If you're not seeing Holy Spirit power in your life, and I don't just mean that you touch somebody and they fly across the room and get slain in the Spirit. I'm not saying that, although I'm not trying to criticize that either. But I'm talking about resurrection power. If you feel like your faith is a, a faith that you keep behind a locked door, then maybe there's something missing in how you are connecting and allowing God to speak into your life. Because here's the thing, I don't think our faith is the kind of faith that we keep behind locked doors, amen? And the disciples would soon learn that this is not the faith that they're supposed to keep behind a locked door. In fact, I would say that the disciples living behind a locked door is what Jesus is about to blow open. In some ways, him appearing in this moment is him proclaiming to the disciples that you can't hide from me. That you might try to block me, but guess what? I'm still going to be coming to you. Because God is relentless in his desires to minister to us, to connect with us, and more specifically, to meet us where we are. Which, in fact, is my big idea for today. That Jesus always wants to meet us right where we are. Jesus wants to meet us right where we are. That is a a truth that we need to be able to proclaim to others, but that's also a truth that we need to believe for ourselves. Sometimes I think one of the biggest disconnects that we see within the church in today, at least in the United States or in the Western world, is we know a lot of things that we actually don't believe. Now, pastor, what in the world do you mean by that? I think I can make a little bit more sense of this. We know a lot of things that we actually don't believe. We've heard things like, Jesus has forgiven you. We've heard things like, Jesus loves me. We've heard things like, God is always there for you, right? And, and maybe you know a list of scriptures that all speak to those ideas and those points, but yet there is a disconnect between who you are and who you've heard God to be, and who you are and who you actually end up becoming through the work of Jesus Christ. And I think the only reason why sometimes we're not further in our faith is because we get in the way. We lock the doors. We worry. We fear. We doubt. You see, I believe that fear arrests faith. I believe that fear creates spiritual procrastination. You know, we talk about procrastinating with our homework, right? Well, I think one of the reasons why we do that sometimes is we're just afraid to deal with what we know we have to do, right? 
There's almost this little subtle fear that we have about tests that we don't want to believe and think that a test is on the horizon, so we just ignore it and don't study. But what ends up happening, right? We end up creating more stress, more pressure, and more issues with our lives. Well, in the same way, I think fear keeps out God from doing what he ultimately wants to do in and through you. It arrests our faith and it creates a form of spiritual procrastination. I like this quote from Corey Ten Boom. If you don't know who she is, she's a famous woman who helped kind of create an underground system to save Jews who were dealing with Nazi Germany. And she writes this, worry is a cycle of inefficient thoughts whirling around a center of fear. Now that's a lot right there, but I think what she's mainly trying to say is that oftentimes our fears or our worries are cycling around a larger fear that we are dealing with in life that we need to, in some ways, confront. Thomas needed to confront his doubts. And I kind of ask you guys now, I don't kind of do it, I I ask you with full intention, is what are the fears in your life? What are the worries in your life? What are the things that you are swimming around, that are arresting your faith, that are causing spiritual procrastination, that aren't allowing you to get to where God wants you to be? You see, I don't think faith needs to be unreasonable, unguided, untethered faith. I think we have good reasons to believe what Jesus tells us. But yet there is a moment where what we know needs to become our beliefs, right? Because you can know about a lot of things. I might be stepping on a few toes. I'm not trying to do this right now, but it's just true. I think most people in America know what it means to not become unhealthy people, right? As far as being overweight and things like that. But yet, the beliefs don't always sink in, right? (laughs) And I'm really not trying to, to... point that out because there's, there's plenty of things that we wrestle with, but we have a disconnect between what we know and what we actually live out in our lives through wisdom. You know, years ago, uh, when I was in high school, I remember a buddy of mine, his name was Ari, um, a really good friend during that time. Um, he invited me to go climbing with him. Now, I need a little bit of context for you guys. I did not grow up in Colorado. I grew up in a place called Florida that is very, very what? Flat. (laughs) Our biggest mountains in in Florida were were really just garbage hills, right? The, The garbage companies there would pile up garbage and then they would put sod over it and turn it into parks and things like that. So that was literally the largest mountain I ever traversed in my life was probably just walking up a garbage hill. So here I was, invited to climb, and so we drove a couple hours down south to Miami to a really awesome climbing gym, and you know, you signed the waiver about not being able uh, to, for the company to be liable for my imminent death or, or the death that could happen, right? <laughs> so they hand us the climbing shoes, they, you get the harness on, and then this wonderful thing comes out, right? What is this right here? For anybody that is listening on the screen and can't see me, you get this wonderful rope that you eventually tether 
to a climbing harness. And when you're about to climb, it's amazing how much more detail comes with the rope that's, uh, that you're attached to. It's amazing how you look at the carabiner and you try to make sure that there's not a single dent, a single thing out of place, a single strand that is broken on the rope, and you're really, you know, tugging it and making sure that it's going to hold you up and yanking on that rope. Why? Because you're about to get to a place where that rope matters. So I remember getting the instructions. We were doing belay climbing, which meant that one of us would try to climb up as high as we could, and I think the gym floors were probably 40 to 60 feet high, probably what felt like the top of this ceiling over here. And we would have to try to hold one another. And here's the wonderful thing about belay climbing in a gym like this, is that you were only going to be as safe as however your partner held onto the rope. Because in some ways, you were trusting your climbing partner to do what? To hold you up. And I remember the first time we were kind of thinking about who was going to be the first one to belay, right? Who was going to be the first one to hold the rope and climb up and, and, and do these things? And I didn't want to go first. I kind of wanted to be able to hold the rope and see how that experience was like before I trusted my buddy Ari to hold me up. But eventually you start to climb and you go up there and then you have that moment, right, where you slip on the rock and you fall and then you're feeling all of the same fears of, I'm dying, this is my moment, God, take me into your arms, I commit my body to you. But and then what happens? You feel the rope, boom, start to tighten and then you're kind of swinging up there and it feels pretty good. <laughs> Now, I had good reasons to believe in the harness, to believe in the equipment, to believe in the rope, but I still needed to trust my friend. Well, I think likewise, we have good reasons to believe in our faith, to believe in the truths that God tells us, but we still need to trust in him, in Christ. And our faith is oftentimes like this. It's still an experience of knowing that all of the mechanisms that are in place are meant to guide us, help us, minister to us, be there for us, and protect us. But we still need to trust in our God to hold the rope. And I'm trying to encourage all of you today to believe that Christ is holding that rope in your life. That Christ loves you enough to be able to minister and be there and meet you right where you're at. Verse 27, after Jesus says, peace be with you, it says this. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now there's no exclamation point there, I added that in. <laughs> but this portion of scripture is more important than you can ever imagine. You see, I think it's easy to look at this scripture and just see it as pure narrative, but what is Jesus doing in this moment? He's breaking a perception that Thomas has. One, that Jesus didn't resurrect the way that he said he did. But also, I believe what Jesus is doing both for Thomas and for us is he's showing that he is the kind of God, the kind of father, the kind of son, the kind of person worth trusting with the rope that meets us right where we're at. 
You see, I think we like to believe that God is a cruel God. Well, Pastor Kevin, I've never sang a song. I've only sang my God's an awesome God. I've never said my God is a cruel God. But functionally, we do that, right? Because we, I mean, I deal with this all the time as a pastor. I deal with countless people in in a ministerial uh, context that believe that the things that they have done wrong that God is just waiting that that God is just waiting to bring down the hammer on their lives. And that's usually how people see God. They see God as a very cruel father. And maybe this is because people have experienced a cruel father or a cruel parent in their life or some mentor or influential person of authority in their life, a teacher or somebody who has solidified in them that wrongdoing and and doubting equals punishment. And for whatever reason, that's, why, that's how we see God. We see God more as the God who's about to punish us for the things that we've done wrong. And maybe a minister has wrongly painted that picture, but yet what do you see here? You, ha- you see here a person who had deep doubts, who in some ways put conditions of his doubts on God. Said, I'm not going to believe unless I get to do X, Y, and Z. And then what happens? Does Jesus go there and say, Thomas, here I am. And guess what? You're going straight to hell, buddy for not believing in me. No, what does he do? He says, peace be with you. Come here. Put your finger right here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it to my side. And then what does Jesus do for Thomas? He calls out those doubts and he tells him to do what? To stop doubting and believe. Because here's the thing, church. If you do not deal with your doubts, your doubts will lead you down a road of unbelief. There is nothing wrong with having doubts in your life. And you've heard me preach this before, that doubts typically bring us down two different roads. One of them is unbelief. And then the other one is, guess what? Strengthened faith. You see, doubts can be an opportunity for us to grow in our faith. But what I am advocating for each of you to be able to hear me well with is you do not want to leave your doubts unchecked. Don't do that. If you leave doubts unchecked, they will eventually lead to unbelief. But if you deal with your doubts, then you're giving God the opportunity to grow and strengthen your faith. And that is exactly what Jesus was calling Thomas to in this moment. He was giving him opportunities to deal with his doubts. But then what did he say? Okay, buddy, now it's time to stop doubting and believe. This is what we need to do. And we need to be reminded by this picture that Jesus meets us right where we are. Jesus meets us right where we are. And this is why there's so many scriptures. In fact, one of my favorite scriptures in the Gospels comes from Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, where Jesus says this to people that are listening on to Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? rest. I'll give you punishment? No. I'll give you the hammer? No. I will give you rest. It doesn't say, come to me, all you who are perfect, without blemish, who've never doubted, who have never made mistakes, and I will give you rest. Rather, it says, come to me, all you who are weary. 
So this is a promise from Jesus himself that if you are in a situation in life that you are feeling less than okay, that you can always go to God and he'll do what? He'll give you rest. And he furthers down this path. He doubles down and says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If ever you were going to say amen, now's the time. Amen. That is the character of our God. That is the character of Jesus. Not a cruel father, not one that is, is, is going to punish us, and not even one that when he's holding on to the rope and he sees us falling, he goes, <laughs> and lets go of it. You know, but rather he's always holding on to that rope and giving us exactly what we need to meet us right where we're at. And I think we have a moral duty as a response to respond in faith. See, I believe that faith does not blindly believe in whatever you are told, nor is it coming to a place where your struggles immediately evaporate. Rather, faith is trusting in the right object and allowing it to shape you. Faith is trusting in the right object and allowing it to shape you. After Jesus told him to stop doubting and believe, he said this, he said, Thomas said this. Thomas said to him in verse 28, my Lord and my God. The words in Greek here are ego, kurios, ke, ego, theos. And that might not be very important to you, but it's actually a very important moment of scripture because you see a lot of people believe that Jesus was just a moral teacher, that Jesus was just a good rabbi, that Jesus was nothing more than a man who died for a set of beliefs that people should consider, but not as God himself, that Jesus never claimed to be God. But yet what happens in this moment upon Thomas dealing with his doubts. Thomas gets to be the first person in the history of the world to have the honor of doing what after his faith is strengthened. Declaring Jesus as Lord and what? God. And does Jesus stop him in his tracks? Because if he's a good moral teacher, if he's just a rabbi, here's his opportunity to say, Thomas, you can't say those words because we believe that that is blasphemy. To worship anything other than the true God is blasphemy. But what does Jesus do? He receives Thomas's worship. Thomas is literally acknowledging and worshiping Jesus as Lord and God in this moment. And then says these words to him. Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is not just touching Thomas, but in fact, he's touching all of us in this moment. What do you mean by that? It's like Jesus is speaking into the ages in allowing you and me, people who are far removed from these historical events, to have the blessing of knowing that Christ, Christ counts us especially blessed for believing in him, even though we have not gotten to touch and see him like Thomas. Which means that each of you in this room have a special blessing that God bestows upon us for believing him 
and not doubting the way that Thomas had doubted in that moment. So in some ways, this proves to every single person throughout history that we too are blessed in our beliefs in Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of people don't know this about Thomas, but he went from the biggest doubter after Jesus' resurrection to one of the biggest proclaimers after Jesus' resurrection. In fact, if you did not know this, out of all the 12 disciples that we had listed earlier on into the service for you, Thomas was the only disciple, or was the only disciple to say, that went further than any other disciple. Thomas traveled more miles. Out of all the 12 disciples, he traveled over 3,000 miles away from Jerusalem to preach the good news to India, to where even to today they have statues and dedicated places for the disciple Thomas, who decided to make sure that the gospel was going to the far reaches of the earth. So the disciples go from locked room to proclaiming the message as far as it would go. And unfortunately, Thomas would die in India as some officials there would decide to stick him and stab him with spears. But he still went further than any other other disciples. So I think he probably deserves a different name other than Doubting Thomas. But at the very least, we need to remember his story and allow these moments to inspire and encourage us. That Jesus is holding on to the rope. That Jesus is who he said he is. And that we need to overcome the fears and the doubts that we have in life by inviting Jesus into our situation and allowing him to meet us right where we are. Amen? That is my application for you this week. That whatever situation you find yourself in, either low or high, that you would take the time to allow Christ to meet you right where you are. That you would think of the fact that Jesus invites all those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him and find rest. That's my message to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the ways that you meet us right where we are that you call all who are weary and heavy laden to come to you and to find rest. Father, I know that many of us may feel that way this morning, and I pray that you would allow this message and these words to inspire faith in our lives, that we would not be people of fear, that we would not be people of worry or doubts, but that we would be people of peace, that we would allow your Holy Spirit and who you are to encourage and transform us in all the areas that we fear. Help us, Lord, to see that you are holding the rope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.